0: This past week, our nation witnessed another hor- horrifying, cruel, and heartbreaking act of evil. And now, as a result, 17 families, 17 high school students will no longer be able to hug their families. Those parents, those families, those grandparents will no longer be able to kiss those children be no more graduations, no more birthday parties no more, no weddings I mean everything that you hope for in a child, for your child will no longer happen and having teenage kids myself, a daughter you know it is heartbreaking to think of just how a young life has just been snuffed out because of an act of evil. And so now a few days afterwards, the questions begin. How could this have happened? How could something this horrifying, something so evil have happened? And how, what, what can we do to prevent it? These are some difficult and complicated questions. And some of them I, I hope to address here today with this message. But because of the time that we have together, you know, we're not gonna be able to get through it all. I mean, this is, like I said, a very complex and complicated issue and and the answer isn't simple and it's not you know it takes some time to really talk about these things so again with a short amount of time I don't think we'll be able to cover it all but the question of evil shouldn't be ignored and we have to address it in times like these but not just in times like these like these but also at all times. Because evil happens every single moment, every single day. You know yeah. right now there's something evil going on. Maybe you're aware of something evil that has happened and your heart is breaking about it. And so my point again is, is that these issues need to be addressed. They can't be ignored. We can't just You know, only discuss it when something tragic happens. As I said, I'll I'll get more into it this morning. But before I do, um, I just want to give you just a quick overview of what we're going to be covering this week. Now, as we near the end of this book, Judges, um, the book of Judges, we have three more chapters left, 19, 20, and 21. Here in 19, the author has given us one final story, and this story will encompass 19, 20, and 21. Just as the Danite problem had been the main concern for the author in the previous two chapters, here now, the Benjamite problem, the Benjamite crisis, becomes his focus of attention. Here the author will demonstrate how individualized and infectious the Canaanite cancer was in Israel and will draw you as the reader into one of the darkest pictures of Israelite life in the entire Old Testament. Like the previous two chapters in the story of Samson, our story here begins with a personal crisis in a private household. Which then escalates to a citywide problem. But this problem, however, soon becomes a crisis for an entire tribe and ultimately jeopardizes the integrity of the entire nation of Israel itself. Now, structurally, these next three chapters are divided into four separate subsections. The background to the outrage of Gibeah. The nature of the outrage of Gibeah, and these two are, we're going to be covering this week. This covers the entire uh, chapter 19. Next week, we'll try to finish the last two subsections, which are the Israelite response to the outrage in Gibeah in chapter 20, and the national crisis that precipitated the outrage at Gibeah. And that's going to be in chapter 21. So hopefully, um, depending on time. Um, how it goes with, with the study? <coughs> excuse me, with the study. Um, hopefully, we'll be. Oh, well, well, not hopefully, but we'll see if we can try to finish uh, judges next week. But if not, we'll, we'll extend it another week. Chapter nineteen has been described as one of the most horrific and gruesome chapters in the Old Testament. This chapter paints a picture of a pip- of a people who've hit rock bottom. Who've hit the bottom of the moral barrel because of the rejection of God, the rejection of His rule, and because there was no central government to enforce His laws. Their debased behaviors are blatantly displayed. And honestly, if this chapter were made into a movie, it would be Probably rated R for violence. At least NC-17. I mean, it would be absolutely horrific. Nothing that your children would ever you would want your children to see. Now, the events in this chapter, the events that take place here, also may look similar to many of the headlines we see in our news today: wife abuse, kidnapping, rape, murder, and injustice. The appalling events that took place earlier this week in Florida is a reminder that without God, people are capable of committing the most heinous crimes. When commenting on just the very first verse of this chapter, F.B. Meyer wrote, it will be sufficient to ponder these words, which occur four times in the book without reading further in this terrible chapter which shows the depths of the depravity to which may sink apart from the grace of God. There are many important lessons to be learned here and I will cover a few of them. However, the most important point that we can't afford to miss is that when evil isn't dealt with, if it's not dealt with properly, It has a tendency to grow and infect an entire society. And ultimately, in the long run, God will judge those people. So as we normally do, before we read, let's come before the Lord and ask him to speak to us this morning as we open up his word. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you this morning. Thank you that you brought us here to hear your word. Lord, and as I present this message, Lord, I pray that these words of mine will not be mine alone, alone, but they be yours, Lord. May you use me to speak the truth, Lord. To show again what there are many similarities between what's going on here in this chapter and what we see in our world today, Lord. And may we see it and recognize it, Lord. And and may it impact us to the point where we just have a heart to not just change ourselves, Lord, but help others see you to be the light, salt and light in this world, Lord. And how desperately... This world needs you. Fill this room with your spirit, Lord. Fill us with your love. Open our eyes and ears now as we get into your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a Levite staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim acquired a woman from Bethlehem in Judah as his concubine. But she was unfaithful to him and left him for her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. She was there four months. Then her husband got up and followed her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had his servant with him and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him to her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him, and he stayed with him for three days. They ate, drank, and spent the nights there. On the fourth day, they got up early in the morning and prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Have something to eat to keep your strength, and then you can go. So they sat down and the two of them ate and drank together. But the girl's father said to the man, please agree to stay overnight and enjoy yourself. The man got up to go, but his father-in-law persuaded him. So he stayed and spent the night there again. He got up early in the morning on the fifth day to leave, but the girl's father said to him, please keep up your strength. So they waited until late afternoon and the two of them ate. The man got up to go with his concubine and his servant when the father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Look, night is coming. Please spend the night. See, the day is almost over. Spend the night here. Enjoy yourself. Then you can get up early tomorrow for your journey and go home. But the man was unwilling to spend the night. He got up, departed, and arrived opposite of Jebus, that is uh, Jerusalem. The man had his two saddled donkeys and his concubine with him. and. Uh, When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Please, why not let us stop at this Jebusite city and spend the night here? But when the master replied to him, We will not stop at a foreign city where there is no Israelites. We will not stop at a foreign city where there is no Israelites. Let's move on to Gibeah. Come on, he said. Let's try to reach one of those places and spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So they continued on the journey, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. They stopped to go in and spend the night in Gibeah. The Levite went in and sat down in the city square, but no one took them into their home to spend the night. We'll stop there for a minute. Right away, the author makes it clear that the events that were about to take place were largely due to an absence of a king. And the rejection of God is their ultimate authority. We're then introduced to a Levite priest and his concubine. Now this particular priest here isn't the same one that we read about in the previous two chapters. This is a totally, completely different priest. Now back then... Um, well he had taken for himself we also are told that he had taken for himself a concubine now back then concubines were second-class wives that usually wealthy males often had to ensure that the family line that the family name continued now these concubines didn't have the same legal legal rights as the primary wives but they were socially and legally bound to their household, to the husband's household, and also they were off limits to other males. Well, this text informs us that this concubine cheated on the priest and fled to her father's house in Bethlehem for protection. Now more than likely she probably took off because she probably her, her unfaithfulness was probably discovered and she knew that her life was at risk because the law clearly states, states that a woman commits adultery anyone commits adultery they are to be killed they are to be stoned now after four months of being at her father's house the Levite finally decides I need to go get her He soon journeys to the house of the concubine's father to persuade her to come back, to come back with him to Ephraim. All this mess could have been avoided had the Levite priest learned from from his previous forefathers that having multiple wives will only multiply your problems. In every short or in every story that we read prior to this where we see a prominent bible figure having more than one wife there was always some kind of issue there was always some kind of problem now uh, don't get me wrong i'm not completely blaming this these issues and these problems on the women no i, I a lot of these a lot of times In these stories, the guys were the ones with the major issue, with the major problems. What I'm saying is that maybe some of the stories would have ended up completely different had these men followed God's original plan that one man and one woman were to be one flesh forever. Now, although it was legally allowable to have more than one wife during this time, it didn't mean that this kind of family, that this kind of family life was blessed by God. Many times we often convince ourselves that there are exceptions to something God says isn't good for us, especially if the laws don't prohibit it. For example, there are many places here in the city, in the state, in our country, where one can go and legally gamble. But the Bible is clear that the love of money is the root, the root of all kinds of evil. And there's various other verses that's, that talk about that. Now I could also make the case with alcohol, prostitution, divorce, and even certain kind of drugs. My point is that just because something is legally allowable, doesn't mean that God is okay with it. As Christians, our supreme duty is to obey God, to obey His Word. Jesus said in Luke chapter eleven twenty-eight, 28 blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it so when the Levite arrives at his father-in-law's home the father-in-law the father-in-law gladly welcomes the priest and kept urging the priest to stay day after day for five days but on the evening of the fifth day Again, the father-in-law tries to convince him to stay another night, but this time the priest has had enough. He's, he's frustrated. And so he firmly insists that he's got to go. He's like, man, okay, we've been hanging out partying for the last four nights. I have to go. I came here to pick up my wife, my concubine, and I have to go back. So the the father-in-law ultimately relents and says, "Okay, you know, I'm not going to fight you. Go ahead and go." And the Levite heads north to begin his journey back home with his concubine, his male servant, and his two donkeys. Let, let me just quickly say that when it comes to offering hospitality, don't push your guests to stay longer. Than, than what they have to, so that you don't so that you avoid becoming overbearing. Like this Levite's father-in-law, it's possible to overstep the bounds of modesty and the curum and become an inconvenience instead of a blessing, instead of instead of helping. Here are some things to consider if you decide to open up your home to somebody. True hospitality should be for the sake of the guest, not for your own, not for you. Too much hospitality may cause an inconvenience and a distress to your guest. And one more thing, if you have other purposes in mind in offering hospitality, if you're saying, oh, I'm going to bring this guy in so he can help me construct my wall and so he can help me, you know, um, uh, I don't know, s- sell things or I'm going to sell him stuff or, you know, whatever it may be. If there are other things in mind, if you have other purposes in mind, that hospitality loses its true meaning and its purpose. If you want a perfect example of what a host looks like looked no further than Jesus himself. He wasn't overbearing. He was mindful of the needs of his guests. He was sympathetic. And he never pushed anyone to eat or drink anything they didn't want to. You know he wasn't like, oh let's party, come on, another night, let's let's hang out. Here's more drink. Here's some more food. You know, he never pushed anyone to do anything they didn't want to. So again, they leave, they take off. He's sad enough and it's like, I I need to go back home. So he heads north. And as they arrive near Jerusalem, which back then it was called Jebus, the sun is beginning to set. And his servant suggests, maybe we should stop there for the night. The priest, however, is... What does he say? He's like, Nah, I'm not going to hang out. I'm not going to go to a city where there are no Israelites. I want to hang out with my people. I want to hang out with, with people that I know are, are going to be good and that our laws say that we ought to be hospitable, hospitable to one another and that we ought to you know, love each other and you know, look out for each other's good. And he says, no, I'm not going there. And he decides that it's probably safer to rest either at Gibeah were at Rama. So they travel another five and a half miles to the city of Gibeah and upon arriving there, there is, he, he notices that there's a lack of hospitality and the group has no other option but to camp out at the city's open city square in hopes of meeting someone that will offer shelter. And again, this would be as if a stranger from New York, let's say, was to come and, and they had, no one was offering hospitality. You couldn't find anywhere else to stay. So he stays at, um, what's that plaza called in downtown? Um, the Yeah, that alligator park. Uh, what is it called? Huh? San, San Jacinto, there we go. San, San Jacinto Park. You know, that would be considered the city square. That would be considered the central, you know, um, meeting place, park of El Paso. Everybody knows about it. And it's, it would be like that. Someone just hanging out there, camping out, waiting for someone to come by and say, hey, you know, what are you doing? Let me, you want to stay with me? So the Levite and his, and his priest, so the Levite priest and the entourage are there at the city square when finally someone comes along and offers to help them. And if your Bibles are still open, let's uh, read the rest of this chapter. Judges 19, verse 16. In the evening, an old man came in from his work in the field. He was from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was residing in Gibeah, where the people were Benjamites. When he looked up and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going and where do you come from? He answered him, we are traveling to the remote hill country of Ephraim, where I am from. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into his home, although there's straw and feed for donkeys, and I have bread and wine for me, my concubine, and my servant with us. There is nothing we lack. Welcome, said the old man. I'll take care of everything you need. Only don't spend the night in the city square. So he brought him to his house and fed the donkeys. Then they washed their feet and ate and drank. While they were enjoying themselves, all of a sudden, wicked men of the city surrounded the house and beat on the door. They said to the old man who was the owner of the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went out and said to them, Please don't do this evil, my brothers. After all this man has come into my house, don't commit this horrible outrage. Here, let me bring out my virgin daughter and the man's concubine now. Abuse them and do whatever you want to them, but don't commit this outrageous thing against this man. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and took her outside to them. They raped her and abused her all night until the morning at daybreak they let her go early that morning the woman made her w- her way back and it was getting light and as it was getting light it was getting light that uh she collapsed at the doorway of the man's house where the master was where where her master was when her master got up in the morning opened the doors of the house and went out to to leave on his journey there was the, there was the woman his concubine Collapsed near the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. Get up, he told her. Let's go. But there was no response. So the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he entered the house, he picked up a knife, took hold of his concubine, cut her up into cut her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and then sent her throughout the territory of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, "Nothing like this has ever happened." or as or has been since the day Israelite, the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt until now. Think it over. Discuss it and speak up. There's a lot to cover here in these last 15 verses that I read but I'll try my best to unpack what we, what we covered here. We begin again by seeing the hospitality is finally extended in Gibeah but not by the Benjamites rather it's provided by an old man who is from the same place this Levite was from this unnamed old man they come to find out is originally from the same home territory as a Levite but is now living in Gibeah after being asked about their situation the priest reveals nothing about the awkward circumstance that brought him there, but instead comes up with a more pious, more religious, more, uh, a better excuse, better reason for being in Gibeah. The priest also, also emphasizes, hey, you take us in. you don't have to take care of us. We're, we're self-sufficient. We'll feed our donkeys. We'll, you know, we have enough food. We just need a place to stay. He, was em- he wanted to emphasize that. And again, he was only looking for a place to sleep for the night. So the old man invites the Levite into his home, carefully noting that he shouldn't spend the night there at the city square because he probably knew how dangerous it was. He probably knew that their lives were at risk. So after welcoming the group to his home, he feeds their donkeys, washes their feet, and provides food and drink. And this must have been a familiar scene for this Levite who had just left his father-in-law's house and had just experienced the same thing. He was probably thinking, wow, this is great. You know, Things couldn't be better. This is awesome. Now, there may come a time where you may find yourself in a strange place with no one to call for help in this situation. There is nothing more valuable than the generosity, than the generosity and, and hospitality of strangers. When I first moved out here 12 years ago, it was during the great flood of El Paso. The rains had blocked I-10, and no one was be able, was able to come into the city. Everyone had to stay in Las Cruces. My wife at the time. Um, I was just graduating from the Border Patrol Academy. My wife had my two young kids. Small. She was traveling. She had never been to the area. She had never been to the region. And here now she's stuck in Las Cruces. All she knew was that she had to take I-10 to come to El Paso. But they wouldn't let her through. And me, I was all the way in Artesia, New Mexico, and there was nothing I can do to help. So I called I talked to some of the, some of the the higher ups the agents you know and I was like hey sir I this and this is going on I need some help And so they put their minds together and and you know fortunately we our agency has like a, a like a wealth marine, like a, a welfare Program program that can help other agents in times of need. This was also, you know, with the chaplaincy. They have the chaplaincy program, and the Lord provided somebody to open up another agent in this family to open up their home to my to my to my wife and my kids. Now, again, these were strangers. These were people I didn't know. I still don't know who they are. But at that time, they were ble- they were just great blessings, and you know it's during these times again that we we need that that those those things come invaluable. And again, I tell you that story because I know what it's like. My family knows what it's like. Again, wisdom and spiritual discernment must be used. You don't want to go and just to want to be in a strange city and just go with the next person that says, oh, come stay with me. You know, if, if the Lord has put it into somebody's heart to offer hospitality, that same spirit that is, is, is offering that is going to speak to you as well and tell you, hey, this person, is a safe person, I've sent him. Don't be so quick, though, to reject a blessing that God has provided for you. Don't say no right away, because you never know. You never know that the Lord, again, may be sending it. If you need to take a minute to pray about it, then do it. The Bible says that hospitality is a spiritual gift that all believers should have and is actually a requirement if you believe God has called you to lead in the church, to be a church leader. Unfortunately, though, for a lot of believers, it's easier to offer hospitality than to accept it. Now, earlier I mentioned a few things to keep in mind when you open up your doors to strangers, when you open up your doors to somebody. Well, here are a few more things to know about hospitable people. Those who have been strangers themselves are best able to sympathize with strangers. And if I saw somebody that, a family that needed a place to stay, do you think I'm going to shut my doors to them? No, because I know what that's like. My family knows what that's like. I'm going to be more likely to be, hey, you know, come and stay with us until, you know, you need to get to point, you know, point B, wherever that may be. The poor are often more hospitable than the rich because they know what it's like to be in need they know what it's like to to be wanting to be needing to be hungry to be wet to be you know cold they know and so it's easier for them to offer that and lastly again those who are aware that in their city there are ravenous wolves running wild And unrestrained will not allow unsuspecting strangers to be devoured by them. You live in a city that the crime rate is up, the murder rate is outrageous, you know, through the roof, and anywhere public they stay, even if they sleep in their cars, there's danger. You're not gonna allow a a person to be like, yeah, hey, you know, that's your problem, that's your business, you, you deal with it. You know, Hopefully I'll see you in the morning. No, you're not going to. You know, someone that is hospitable, has that heart for others, will not allow them to be hurt, to be in a dangerous situation. Well, back to our story. The Levite, again, must have been impressed with the kindness of his host. But little did they know that everything was about to get ugly. Everything was about to go downhill. Things were about to change radically for everybody's life, in everybody's life. And this is what I mean that things change in an instant. When things are going well, man, all it takes is just one incident for things to be completely downhill, to go downhill and change everyone's lives. Verse 22 says, while they were enjoying themselves, all of a sudden, wicked men of the city surrounded the house and beat on the door. They said to the old man who was who was the owner of the house, "Bring out the man who came to your house, so we can have sex with him." Now, if this scene sounds familiar, if you think you've heard it before, you may be thinking of a story in Genesis 19 where lots of visitors were threatened in the same way, in the same manner, by evil men in the city of Sodom. Just as Sodom was exceedingly evil and in peril of judgment, the the Benjamites here were now in danger of the same judgment. The The men of Gibeah were also described in much in the same manner as the men of Sodom. And their brutality was straightforwardly, it was just blatant. There was no hiding it. Now there are a lot of Bible teachers who will take this one passage and make it the central focus of their sermon to shamefully condemn homosexuals. They will say, they will take this one passage and And, and man, the whole message is about the evils of homosexuality. Now, although I absolutely believe that God has designed sex to be between one man and one woman in marriage and that everything outside of that is sin, I believe this part of the story has more to do with the unrestrained evil that was in the heart of these men than who they wanted to have sex with. Again, this entire story is meant to highlight what happens to a society that has rejected God and does what is right in their own eyes. You see, I personally know what I'm capable of If I turn my back on God and start living to fulfill the desires of my own heart, I also know that I can convince myself that every sin that I commit is justifiable. There's a reason for me to do that. There's a reason for me to to drink. There's a reason for me to abuse my wife. There's a reason for me to uh, commit adultery. There's a reason for me to, you know, I, I can I can come up with a million reasons and justify my sins if I turn my back on God and start living to fulfill the desires of my heart. I also know what my heart is capable Well, this is me understanding this, me knowing this is I know what I'm capable of, even as a Christian. It's hard to imagine how much more wicked my heart would be if I didn't have the knowledge of God, if I didn't understand, if I didn't have, if I didn't understand what Christ did for me on the cross, I, I, I can't imagine, I can't fathom in there. But I do, I know Jesus. You know, and for me to do all those things, even after knowing Him, man, the Bible talks about that too, and it talks about there's no greater judgment for those people. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 21 and 22, For from within, out of the people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. So you see, it wasn't in Gibeah. it wasn't just the sexual immorality. It wasn't just the sexual deviance. It wasn't just the homosexuality. It was all these things. It was all, these, all the evil that was in their heart. So I believe verse 22 is telling, this, telling us about these, that this was the situation with these evil men. Because we soon find out that it really wasn't about who they had sex with. In the following verse, the old man makes an attempt to reason with the men that surrounded his house by pointing out to them or trying to reason with them that this action was both evil and horrible. He soon realizes the futility of, in, in reasoning with them. So rather than handing over his guest, the old man offers or suggests that he take his virgin daughter and the priestess concubine. While the offer of these two men, of these two women in place of the Levite is clearly unacceptable to these wicked men of Gibeah, what do we see the Levite doing? In a desperate attempt to protect himself as well as the honor of the he seizes hold of the most vulnerable individual in their midst. It wasn't the servant. It was the concubine. He seizes her, he grabs her, and says, Here, take her. And he sends her out to them. Now I'm not going to get into the details of verse 25. But you could only imagine the crazy, the, the, hor- the horror that took place that entire night. And it just breaks my heart even thinking about it. Someone would treat another person, a, a woman, in that way. They did, and it lasted until daylight, until the sun went up. And as daylight approaches, the woman is finally let go and has just enough strength to return to the doorway of the old man's house before she collapses. And then it's evident that the Levite, as well as the host, holds little hope of the survival of the concubine because no one even takes notice when she returns, no one even pays attention. When she comes back, they're not waiting up for her. They're not, you know, peeking out the window or out the door and, and just, no, they just they go to bed. They go to sleep. So it's clear that the Levi has no interest in her well-being. And then when he gets up, what does he say to her? Get up, let's go, as her lifeless body is there laying on the floor and when she fails to respond again what does he do he simply picks up her body and places it on his donkey and makes his way home and as soon as he arrives the priest picks up a knife and cuts her dismembers her into 12 pieces and has it and has her body parts delivered throughout all of Israel so that the twelve tribes become aware of it, so that they see it with their own eyes, so they see the horror of these body parts with their own eyes. When the people from all the tribes of Israel take notice, it prompts them to respond forcefully to the circumstances surrounding this gruesome act. See, never before in the history of Israel never before since they've left Egypt had something like this, had something shocking ever been seen. Something so gruesome ever happened. The entire nation of Israel can no longer ignore the depths of wickedness that had infected them. They had to do something about it. and the next part of the story in verse 21 we'll, we'll be seeing that we'll be covering it next week but in our story here on the surface this story is about hospitality the hospitality of the Levites father-in-law and the old men in Gibeah it even initially appears that the biggest problem the biggest factor could be just the the inhospi- inhospitability I might have said that wrong, but the that the, the Gibeon people were just inhospitable. Ethically, however, this store-strained animal lust and human depravity. The laws that God had established to direct the morals, ethics, and values of a society were thrown out the window and replaced with a view that each person ought to dictate what is right for them, to dictate their own moral principles. Our story here is a perfect example of a society where people are guided by their own self-seeking morals rather than on God's. And in the end, the ones end up suffering are the weakest, and the most vulnerable. You see, when a society ignores God's ultimate authority, it'll only be a matter of time before he brings judgment on them through himself, through natural or supernatural forces. In Genesis 19, God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. And in the next chapter, he will use other tribes to punish not just the city of Gibeah, but also the entire tribe of Benjamin for their wickedness. Centuries later, Israel still remembered this crime in Gibeah. And it's used as an example of wickedness. In Hosea chapter 9, in verse 9, it says, They are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. And in, the, and in the, the following verse, says, O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. Now some will argue that we live in a much more civilized society and that the more educated or enlightened a culture becomes, the less likely these behaviors will occur. Yet a quick scan in any one of our news channels and any of our newspapers will reveal that things seem to be getting worse than they are better. You can have all the universities, all the philosophies, all the ch- you know, churches, you can have all that stuff. And still, you can have evil. And still, again, things seem not to be getting better, but getting worse. Every time we hear about adultery, abuse, kidnappings, rapes, and murder, it ought to remind us that regardless of how civilized or educated a society is, sin and evil will never be eliminated this side of heaven. It never will. You can take away All the guns, you can destroy all the weapons, you can confiscate them, you can do all those things. You can pass tougher laws restricting what people say, hear, and do. You can keep people locked up in their garages, but still, evil will remain, sin will remain. We inherited our sinful nature from Adam and Eve. We are corrupted individuals. We are sinful. The issues that are being proposed to, to solve our nation's moral problems can be, can, can be solved if we have a wicked heart people will continue to hurt one another because of their sinful nature. And our void, are empty inside of God's truth and of God's love. We don't need tougher laws. We don't need any of that. We don't need man-made answers to solve our moral and ethical issues we need Jesus Christ but we can't recognize our need for Jesus if we can't recognize and accept our own condition without him the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 18 there is no one righteous not even one there is no one who understands There is no one who seeks God. All have churned away, all have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. However, later on that passage, Paul tells us that God has provided a solution. In the New Living Translation, it puts Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 26. And if you want to read this later on, again, it's found in Romans chapter 3. It says, it puts it like this. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed him from the penalty, when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The sacrifice, this sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he, held, when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in past times, for He was looking ahead and included them in what, they would, what He would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate His righteousness, for He Himself is fair and just, and makes sinners right in His sight when they believe in Jesus. True change. Begins when the heart of a person is healed, when the mind is renewed, and when the soul is given spiritual life. It's nothing else, it's God changing a person, God transforming them. The Bible says that the only way this can happen, that this can happen, is when a person opens up the door through their hearts and allowing Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. And if that's you, if you've never done that, and if you see the that you're, the condition that you're in, and that you're in the fallen condition, and that you need a Savior, wherever you're at. Pray this from the bottom of your heart. Father, I believe I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And that he died to forgive me. Lord, I hand my life over to you. I surrender my life to you. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to live my life from here on forward for you. Thank you for forgiving me. In the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. As we close here, we as Christians, as believers, need to be that salt and light. The world needs us. Our our lost friends, family members, regardless if they can't stand us, they need us. What kind of person? used to living in the that's used to living in the dark enjoys enjoys it when the light is turned on nobody does it hurts but that's what we call it to be but in all things do it in love not in a condemning way not in a way that puts people down that person committed that crime in Florida. He just, he needed to be loved. He needed Christ. He needed people around him. And I don't know, again, I don't know the full situation. But there are still people living in this state that are just like that. And so we have to offer what God has given us and offer it to them. He must be compassionate. You must be loving. God has called us to do, and let's continue to pray for that fa- those families, and even uh, for this family, for the family of this man now this, that's in jail. That's going to be facing these. We got to be praying for their family, for his family, and pray, be, you know, as a matter of fact, be praying for his own salvation. That's the only way he's going to be healed. He's broken. People are broken inside. We need to be healed. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that you give us in your word, Lord. Lord, your word is true and it's honest and it's straightforward. And you show us, Lord, that what man is capable to do the evil that they're capable of, Lord. You just even in your word, in this story. Lord, I just pray that we will continue to be your examples, your ambassadors here in this earth. Help us to walk with you. Help us to walk and just keep our eyes focused on the cross. Protect our nation. Protect our children. Protect the innocent. Lord we pray for revival we pray that more people will just come to know you because of this tragic event you can make horrible things into good things Lord and this nation needs you we need you we comfort those who are hurting And may we just always remember you, Lord, wherever we're at and wherever we go. May we have that heart of hospitality. May we have that heart of love, looking out for others, Lord. Keep us safe. Keep everyone in this room safe. Keep all those that prayed that prayer to receive you, Lord. May they come to know you more intimately. Bless the rest of this time, Lord. Bless us as we fellowship. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.